And joining me today is the founder and CEO of Valuetainment, host of the PBD podcast, and author of Your Next Five Moves, Master the Art of Business Strategy, Patrick Bet David. Finally, welcome to the Ruben Report. It's great to be on. Good to see you, my friend. Uh, we are both relatively new Floridians, so I feel we should start there. Do you have anything you want to tell the people about life in Florida? I got to tell you, I lived in L.A. 20 some years, minus the time in the military. I lived five years in Dallas, Texas, which was fantastic. I kept one of my companies there. But then Florida, if California and Texas could make a baby, it would be Florida. Because <laughs> you get the lifestyle and you get the taxes. They kind of leave you alone. So uh, we're in love living in Florida. So you moved the company for what was it, five years in Dallas? And then what caused you to leave Texas? Because Texas is pretty good. You ain't paying the taxes there. It's a nice lifestyle over there. Was it purely weather and uh, tropical leave related? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So for me, we were at a point where we outgrew the headquarters and Valuetainment and the insurance company were in the same headquarters, same office. And then it was either I'm going to sign a lease of a few years with Valuetainment in Dallas and kind of move them to a different building, or if I'm moving, that's the time to make the move. So at the time, uh, when this decision was being made, it was at the beginning of COVID. And my wife and I, we were looking at New York because if we're running a media company, media company, you got to be in a place where you can recruit executives from the media company. You can recruit talent to want to live there. So we said Greenwich, New York, great. It's right there. It's the Mecca. You can compete. The market's available. We looked at Tennessee because the state taxes. And then we looked at potentially going back to Newport Beach, California, because, you know, media again there. But COVID happened. Everything kind of moved away from there. We always go to Florida. And then uh, I knew uh, Value Timid and the media company would be a lot easier to recruit people to South Florida than any of the other locations. So Lifestyle was there. I got four kids now, 10 and eight, a six, and my daughter just turned one. So we got a family that's a younger startup family. We got to be in a place that sports, education, all of that combined together. Finally, we said South Florida's place to go. And then obviously the rest is history. And I have seen the video of the house on YouTube and uh, it's not bad. Let's just say it's not bad. Two bedroom condo, you know, it's been a very nice place. We like it. We're very happy with it. <laughs> yeah, two, two bedroom condo might be under the house that you're rocking over there on the water in Fort Lauderdale. Absolutely beautiful. So I know my audience all knows you from uh, from the business side of things and mostly from the podcast side of things. And we'll get into some of that stuff. Uh, but can you just tell people who, who don't know your bio a little bit about growing up in Iran and just some of the some of the who how you got to where you are kind of stuff? Born and raised in Iran, lived there in uh, uh, for 10 years in Tehran, Iran, during the revolution with the Shah. I was born October 1878. Four months later, he was in exile. They kicked him out. Then Khomeini showed up. Then the military was in shambles because 2,000 of his leaders were reporting to the Shah. Khomeini got rid of him. Saddam saw that as an opportunity. He attacked. Half a million people got killed. Six weeks after Khomeini dies... This is around July 15th of 89. We escape. I go to Germany with my mom and my sister. We lived at a refugee camp for a year and a half. And then from Germany, we came to the States. I went to Glendale, California. Right after high school, I joined the Army, went to the 101st Airborne Division Air Assault, and then got out of the Army. I wanted to be a bodybuilder. I was going to be the next Mr. Olympia, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was going <laughs> to 
when Mr. Olympia going to be an actor, marry a Kennedy, and then one day run for governor. But then I met a girl named Jean-Vierre who worked at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. She told me about Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. I was 21. And she said, this is how I make a living. It's a great industry. I started working at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter a day before 9-11. And then I stayed in the industry. Seven and a half years later, I was in Transamerica. I was a year at the Morgan, seven and a half years Transamerica. And then October of 09, started my own insurance company, PHP. We grew that from 66 agents to 20,000 plus agents, 150 offices nationwide. And then accidentally started a YouTube channel that turned into a media company, Valuetainment. And then obviously the rest is history. So I love how you say that all with just such ease. I mean, I know you've told that story. There's a million stories within that story. I know you've said it a million times before, but the reason I wanted you to say it was because you are, as much as anyone I think I've ever had on the show, the living, breathing example of what the American dream is. Now, how could that possibly be? You are a brown-skinned immigrant. I thought that this is the most racist place. I thought we hate people from the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera. How do you do it? You know, the the power of levity. Let me give you an idea (laughs) what I mean by the power of levity and the power of not taking everything personally and crying about it. So I'm in uh, 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 in the Army, and one time, one of these uh, uh, soldiers, private, I'm in boot camp with these guys. And they say, so where are you from? I said, I'm from Iran. He says, what do you mean you're from Iran? I said, I'm from Iran. So how are you in the military? You know, aren't you, are you a U.S. citizen? I said, no, I got a green card. How do you get into the military as a, you know, Iranian citizen? And you're now in our army. I said, can you guys keep a secret? They said, yeah, what's up? I said, honestly, I'm kind of like an underground spy operation right now. I'm trying to take all the training here from Iran. And by the way, these guys believed it. And it was to the point where my sergeant had to come and talk to me about it. And we laughed about it. But obviously, there's some levity to it. I remember going to Alabama one time and the waiter at Waffle House were on the way to Panama City, Florida, to party for like at Club La Vila. And this Panama City waiter is just looking at me angled and he's like, I've never seen a nose like that before. I said, this is what you call a legit qualified nose from the Middle East. You guys don't have stuff like this in America. We have it in Iran. I've never met an Iranian before. I said, I'm an Iranian. Anyways, then I go and I start working at Morgan Stanley. It's a very interesting story. What happens one time? I got into the LDS market, clients who were LDS. And it's a very good market to get into. You know, when you're managing money, you're going to get into different kind of markets car wash owners, doctors. One of the markets I got into was LDS. And this one business owner I sat with, I go into their house. It's right after 9-11. And they said, can you tell us about your background? I said, sure. Born and raised in Iran, all this stuff. And I said, now I'm at Morgan Stanley managing money and, you know, helping our families. And she says, look, we don't mind doing business with anybody from Morgan Stanley, but we would like you to be somebody else with a background that we can relate to. Quite frankly, after what happened with uh, 9-11, we feel a little bit uncomfortable doing business with somebody from the Middle East. Now, in that situation, I can say, how dare you say that and go cry and complain about it? I said, totally understand. Left, brought back my partner. They met. They did business. We split commission. We were happy. We were done. Moral of the story is, I don't care who you are. If you're white, black, Asian, Middle Eastern, tall, short, fat, skinny, educated, not educated, you got a beard, you don't have a beard, you have a mustache, you don't have a mustache, everyone's getting judged. Whether you like it or not, and, and the reason why this is a, a topic I'm bringing up is because as much as everyone's judging us, we're also judging people. So if you get to judge others, why can't they judge you and I? So the, the challenge is how we react to it. You can go and think like you're a victim. I cannot believe what he said. 
or you can go prove them wrong. Maybe that person was right. Maybe they didn't make the right decision. And then maybe 20 years later, they're sitting their husband and wife and saying, babe, that was the guy that we said no to. And look at him now, look how successful he is. But either way, someone's going to be right. So when you're saying the whole American dream success story, look, I'll tell you something about right now. The time we're in right now, there is two camps. There is the camps that are like, well, listen, don't worry. It's just not a big deal. It's going to be a small market correction, you know, like the Dave Ramsey camp. Real estate's not going to really take because look at the inventory. It's not really that high. Maybe Dave Ramsey's right. Maybe he's not, but it's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. And then there's the camp that's going to be like, listen, I think it's a shit show. I think I better pay attention to what's going on. What do you mean? You know, inventory is going up. Interest rates are going up. Inflation is going up. Gas prices are going up. Fourth of July cost me 11% more this year than it did last year. Making a million dollars two years ago and you make it today, it's like making $600,000 today, just two years later, $100,000, two years ago, $60,000. But at the same time, that can either produce a lot of fear for you and you don't move and you don't do anything, or you can look at this marketplace where fear is high. You just have to know the American dream of the next great stories are burned, you know, born during times of crisis. The American dream is alive. Anybody and everybody can go out there and have their dreams become a reality, whatever that may be. But it will take a lot of effort and you not taking things personally. So I, that, what you just said there, I think has been your main message that I've been picking up on for, for the last two months as, as the economy's gotten real weird and so much craziness with this administration and everything, that more than anything else, there's opportunity here right now. Is that something that you always saw? Did your parents teach you that? Is that just from the immigrant story? Like, where did that idea of, oh, things are kind of crappy, but I have a chance within that, where'd that come from? Right, so my parents, you know, you got, my mom, they, their, their Bible was the Communist Manifesto. I come from a very strong communistic family from my mother's side who escaped Russia, Baku, Azerbaijan, and they went to uh, Bandar Pahlavi, which is like a Port Pahlavi, north of Tehran, and they stayed there, but their Bible was Communist Manifesto, you know, admiring Stalin and Lenin and, you know, how they led. And so my mother's side, she thought rich people were greedy. And my dad's side, he was an imperialist. He thought poor people were lazy. So I'm completely confused <laughs> in the middle of here. I remember I was uh, um, 14 years old. I'm in high school. And uh, we start talking about politics. First time in my life where, you know, actually you want to know what's a Democrat and a Republican because we didn't talk about that stuff early on because my parents got two divorces in 20 years over politics. I come home one day and I'm like, hey, mom, are we Democrats or are we Republicans? And she said, we're Democrats. I said, okay, cool. I said, can you tell me why we're Democrats? She says, yeah, because Democrats are for the poor and Republicans are for the rich. I said, mom, when I grow up, I want to be a Republican one day. <laughs> she's, like, she's like, what do you mean? I said, I want to be rich one day, man. I hate being broke. I want to do something about my life that I have going on. But you know, in regards to fear, my dad worked at a 99 cent store his entire life. My dad was worried. So he wanted me to stay in the military for 20 years. And that was the safe route. My dad's always been the very safe guy who worked 80 hours a week, always been a worker. My mother was very paranoid who just didn't want me to become rich and successful because those are the people she despised the most. But when I got out of the military, I had a mentor of mine, Robbie, who recommended me a book called how to Master the Art of Selling by Tom Hopkins. I'm working at Bally Total Fitness. And my sister recommended me How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I read those books, Dave. And I got to tell you, 2,000 books later, I could not believe all this information is in these $10 books, $8 books, $15 books. 
I got obsessed. The stuff I learned from there, I applied to my business. And then obviously the rest is, it is what it is today. Do you you consider yourself political? Because it's kind of funny. When I listen to you, it's like the way you talk about politics is sort of seemingly an extension of the way you talk about business and money. Like you don't strike me as purely political. I mean that as a compliment, actually. Like you have a lot of political insight, but to me, it's usually connected back to what you're talking about on a business side of things. I would say I am pro-capitalist and extremely aware of everything that's going on around me, because if you're not, you know, we become naive and oblivious to the conditions. And then sometimes you vote thinking it's the right choice. And then two years later, you realize 85 percent of Americans are not happy about the economy. Yet 81 million people voted for this Mm -hmm. two years ago. And a lot of them that voted, they would like their vote back. And it's not because of it's, you know, who Joe Biden is. I'm sure he's a great father and a husband. That's none of my business. That's his personal life. I don't care how he's running his marriage. That's none of my business. I didn't care what Trump did with his personal life and all this stuff that you saw with, you know, Bush in the RV and all grabbing this. That stuff is to you. You want to party that way? All to you. I want to see what kind of policies you're making. So, when, when you do your taxes the first time when you make real money and you cut the biggest check you've ever cut, and I was in my mid to late 20s, I'm sitting there saying, okay, where is this money going to? And you're sitting there saying, well, this, is, this goes to taxes. No, no, I get that, but where is this actually going to? Like, what are you going to do with this $100,000 you got this year? What are we going to do? Is that going to be the road? Is that the exit sign? Is that the building? Is that the public school? Where is it going? To? And what portion of that am I using? And what portion am I giving that I'll never use? And is it a responsible way they're spending this money? And so then you start asking yourself, would we be better putting that money in, the, in taxes and allowing government employees to do better with that money? Or is that money better being put into the private market of those who know how to do good things with that money that'll benefit everybody better? And then you start saying, what is this all about? So then that kind of gets you to the next level and the next level. So for me, it started with business. Then I noticed how policies can affect your business, regulation, taxes, all that stuff. Then it went deeper, deeper, deeper. And I said, no, you got to pay attention to all the stuff that's going on. Were you shocked after 20 plus years in LA, then you go to Texas where there's no income tax. Now you're in Florida where there's no income tax. I mean, to me, I, I don't want to say this out loud because I don't want to give them any ideas, but it's like, I would have paid an entry tax to get here. I truly would have. If they would have said, Dave, you got to pay 50 grand to get into this state because we've done it right and we're trying to keep you freaks from Cali out of here. I would have done it. I think it's actually probably a worthy thing to look into when you're bringing in all of these new people. But the fact, the simple fact is I didn't move here for taxes, but now I, I'm like, wow, I also have all more money than I had, even if the money isn't worth as much as it used to, used to be. Yeah. I mean, listen, what, what people, sometimes when you're in a bad relationship, you don't know until you have another relationship. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, what was that all about? This is like, you know, unbelievable, like 180. But sometimes you need to be in a bad relationship to know and value a great relationship. Sometimes you need a bad friend to realize what a great friend is. Sometimes you need a crisis to know what life is like when you're at peace. Sometimes you need to go through a dark time to be reminded of what it's like when there's light. Living in California right now, look, here's how it works. If I was Governor DeSantis, and you've had many, many interactions with them, uh, if if I was Governor DeSantis and somebody said, well, I don't like what you're doing with this. I don't like what you're doing with that. I don't like what you're doing. I don't like these, you know, masks and, you know, there's this stuff you're doing with, don't say, you know, gay bill and the stuff you're Disney and the stuff you know with taxes. And just, 
I don't like the way you handle vaccine, all this stuff. I would say, look, if these seven things are important, if you like high taxes, if you want somebody to make decisions for you, if you want all of this stuff, I will buy a one-way ticket for you to move to California. I'd be pushing people out of Florida who don't like the policies that's being built. At the same time, I would also say, if you're watching this and you like the following five things, this is what we do in Florida. This is the perfect home for you. So like right now, DeSantis came out and called them out yesterday, or you, you saw that over the weekend, uh, uh, Newsom's trying to call out DeSantis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he said, well, let me tell you, in Florida, if you stand up in Florida, you should stand up for yourself. I, I believe in freedom of this. I'm freedom to be heard. I'm freedom to be heard. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't believe that stuff. You don't believe that stuff. So a DeSantis in Florida, you don't like what we do in Florida? Go to California. I, I think more states, it, because if you think about the one state that doesn't matter when it comes down to elections, what is the one state definitely doesn't matter when it comes down to elections? Cali. California. Yeah. Okay. So guess what? Send everybody who wants high taxes to California. Send everybody who wants entitlements to California. If you love it so much, here's a one-way ticket. Go to California. And then everybody else, everybody else that wants the job creators like you and I, come on down here. Yeah. And not only that, but you can have your eight-month abortions and you can have your uh, genitals chopped off or added or whatever it might be. It's a, it's a bizarre a bizarre situation. So you move these companies and you bring your, your all the people that are working for you. What about just sort of spiritually for everybody? Because I know for my guys, just every, everybody's life is better. And putting aside finances, that it's not just about that, just the quality of life. So spiritually, you're saying, what do you mean by spiritually? Just the day-to-day -day when you're seeing these people and how their, their lives improved by, by moving Here? into a place. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, listen, when I was moving to Texas, uh, we, we, it took us three years. I, I was selling Texas for three years before we moved to Texas. My wife is from Texas. She was born and raised in Houston, lived there for 21 years, and she did not want to go to Texas. <laughs> so I sold Texas, Texas, Texas. Every time an article would come out about Texas, I would sell it. Until eventually we moved. And I knew, you know, a few things that goes is family. You're going to miss family. You're going to miss knowing the freeways. You're going to miss the church you go to. You're going to miss the Starbucks you go to. You're going to miss the gym you go to and the quick routine that you follow. All of these routines you miss, what you do on Sundays, all those things. And then eventually, three, six months later, people in Texas are like, I don't miss any of that stuff in California. And if I need to take a flight, I'll just get on a flight, go to California for a weekend, and I'll come back on a flight. It's easy to go. Then you come to Florida and you start seeing what you're able to do here in Florida with the lifestyle, with the different things that it offers. And okay, what are the downfalls of Florida? Uh, iguanas, there's, there's gonna be iguanas here, okay? If you live in Orlando and you live by like a little pond, there's probably an alligator in there, okay? If, if you live by the water, like where you live or where I live, you're probably not dealing with, uh, uh, you know, uh, alligators or crocodiles that you're going to be there. If you're on the inside, sure. Are you going to get weather storms? Yes. Every state has something that you're not going to be happy with. California is going to be earthquake. Texas is going to be tornadoes, you know, or blizzards. Florida is going to be storm or hurricanes. No matter where you're going to have that. But on a golf score, if you mark it on 20 different things, good luck trying to beat Florida. You know, it's funny, in California, it was like raining fire half the year. And then I moved here and people said, but it's so hot in the summer. And I'm like, it was literally raining fire. There were ashes being dumped on my house every other week. 
Uh, all right, so let's let's move on to some of the some of your sort of nuts and bolts stuff because we talked a little bit about economy uh, a couple weeks ago. You had a video out that I saw where I think you said, but correct me if I'm wrong, that you said that we would officially or they would officially announce a recession. I think you said by July 15th. It seems to me they've already kind of admitted it. Yellen has sort of. You probably saw the video where she said, well, we're probably in one, but we're hopeful. And then they all kind of admit it. Well, I, I guess, A, do you think we are, I mean, I think technically we are in a recession, but do you think they will admit it? And how do you feel about July 15th, middle of the month? I mean, are we there? I think July 1st was the first day of recession. Uh, I think the numbers on GDP has got to come out July 28th, and we'll find out if it's two quarters of the economy declining. And then it'll become official with some economists will say that. Uh, now, CNN, I don't know if you saw the article last week by CNN saying, you know, some experts are saying uh, uh, we're in recession, but why is it that it's eight white economists that are saying we're in recession? When it comes on to recession, nobody cares what color you are. And they said these economists are not diverse enough. You know, there's no African-American economists in America. The African-American population is 13 percent, but only three percent are economists. You know, and this percent is this, but that percent is this. And I said, look, you know, in. America, um, 24% of the population is Hispanic, but in the NBA, it's only one Hispanic player. What a racist organization the NBA yeah. is. Why don't you guys go a little bit more diverse and have hire some Hispanics? There is no Iranian basketball player. I'm offended that you guys don't have any Iranian basketball players in the NBA. So you hear comments like this people are making to get people distracted from the fact that we're in recession. It's what's happening. Now, the question becomes... How ugly can it get? And, you know, how many people will be prepared for it and what policies the current administration will come? My hopes is they don't do one thing. And the one thing I hope they don't do, because it's going to happen, when Lehman Brothers, when AIG, when all these companies are going through what they went through in 07, 08, 09, when we remember what happened there, those stories are going to come up when some banks are not going to make it. You're going to hear some stories of some of these companies that are multi-multi-billion dollar companies. They're not going to make it. And they're going to need to be uh, bailed out. I just hope, Dave, they don't go the bailout model. Because if they go the bailout model, what the bailout model does is it just delays the headache for 10 more years. It delays the headache for 10 more years. It keeps delaying it versus let's just go through it. And here's what's going to happen with the economy if we go through it. So interest rates right now, 5.7% which means you would have bought a house eight months ago, your rates would have been 3%, 2.5%. Right now it's 5.7%. Here's what people don't realize. If you go back from today, let's just say go all the way back to 1970. Do you know from 2008 prior, from 2008 and prior, like 1970 to 2008, do you know the interest rates have never been at 5.7%? It's always above 5.7%. Mm -hmm. Let me say this one more time. From 08 and prior to 70, rates have always been six and a half, seven and a half, eight and a half, nine and a half. In 80, 81, under Carter, it was at 18 and a half percent. Okay, but that was pretty bad. Now, let's go worst case scenario. Let's go best case scenario. And you decide where you want to manage your level of risk tolerance. Worst case scenario, we're going to hit 19% in interest rates. What's the likelihood of that happening? Less than 5%. Okay. But that's 19%. That's worst case. What's the best case scenario? 
We end up around seven, seven and a half, and we stayed there for a few years. Okay, if we go to seven, seven and a half, maybe we go up and hit 10 points, which we probably will. And then we come back down and level off around seven to 8%, which is fine. If we stay at seven to 8% for a decade, give or take a decade, and we're kind of like, well, I got a good rate. What rate did you get? 7.1%, fine. But now we're going back to being fiscally responsible instead of keeping these interest rates at zero and you're getting loans at two and a half percent, which is all fake money. And it's not the real way of doing it. So yes, we're in recession, but I'm almost, I'm almost leaning towards the administration doing nothing. Now, the only thing I would recommend if the administration wanted to do something like this, who, who does the current administration need the most today? Well, um, a story came out talking about the fact that companies now are rescinding offers. How often do you even read an article like that? That means Twitter gave you a job offer for 100 grand with $50,000 in bonuses with 401k, all this stuff. You get started on the 19th and they say to you a week later, after you put in your two week notice, we're rescinding that mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. Okay. Zuckerberg is wanting to fire people. He's doing the right thing. Tesla's firing people. A bunch of companies are letting people go. And that's going to be taking place. Now, if that happens and a lot of people lose their jobs, economy is going to take a hit. Crime's going to go up. A lot of scary things could happen if the economy that's, that get, get, gets that bad. The one thing Biden and, and their administration could potentially do is, and, and Dave, you tell me what you think about this. What if they said, hey, you got these five employees you could hire this year at 50 grand a pop. Let's just pick the number 50 a pop. Five times 50, if you hire five employees and give them a job, Mr. Employer, Mr. Small Business Owner, which is 49% of America, 49% of all the jobs are small business owners. Um, if you give those five people $50,000 of your jobs, we'll give you a tax credit on half of it, which means what? I'm it means I hire five people overnight. That's what I would do. Yep. So now small business owners are like, listen, John, come on, 50K, $25,000 tax credit. Come on. So that way, the employer wins, the employee wins, and the administration wins. Those are the types of things that the administration can do. Not the PPP loan, not free money, not a UBI. No, let's kind of work, put it on me, put it on the employee, put it on the government. Let's work together the next two, three years because it's going to get ugly. So I can hear loudly through the pipes of the internet, all of the people watching this going, Patrick, you just made sense there. But the problem is that the Democrats are in charge and that there is basically a controlled demolition of our economy. One of the things that I talk about on the show a lot is I try not to judge people's motives, but it seems almost impossible for me to believe that this is not intentional, that the inflation stuff is not intentional, the printing of money is not intentional. All the people, everything that they have done has been designed, specific, everything with energy specifically designed to destroy the economy. So of course, what you just said there makes sense. Like anything, literally anything, some tax relief for people, fine, but they won't do any of it because it is by design. Do you, do you buy that theory? Uh, let's, play, let's play that yeah. part. Let's see yeah. it's by design. I hope it is. Great, do it by design. Do it by, I'm totally okay with you doing it by design. Here's why. Because they think majority of the American people are dummies. And they're not. Let's not let's not expect that everybody's brilliant. No, we're, we're naive if we think that. Let's let's say 40 percent of people are not going to pay attention to anything and they're going to fall for that. You're right. It's the rich man's fault. Let's tax the billionaires. It's not going to solve anything. Right. But if that's their card, it'll backfire. Why? Let's unpack that. So go with defund the police. What a great marketing campaign. 
And the Republicans were so worried. Look at these. I can't believe they're saying this. Let them say it because their own people are going to turn against them. Mm -hmm. Six months later, the hell are you talking about defund the police? Democrats are saying it to Democrats. I voted for you. I don't want you to defund the police. Well, we, we never said it. It was really the Republicans. No, no, you said it. You said this. This is not a good idea. So watch this. This whole concept where, you know, many people on the left were saying, you, companies, corporations, you should let people work from home. Oh, really? Yes. You should let people work from home. No problem. Who said that? Liberal governors from left-leaning states. Okay. They said that. Sounded like a very good idea. Like you're supporting so many people on your own side. No, no. Here's what you did when you said you should be able to let them work from home. The people said, oh, so you mean to tell me I can work for IBM and work from home? Yes. No problem, New York. I'm moving to Florida and I'll work from home. New York lost $21 billion of tax revenue last year. So even though, Dave, they're doing it intentionally, if they are, majority of America is going to fall for the tactics and they're going to say, yeah, I'm kind of not with you. I'm stepping away from you. And they'll flip. How do you think the blue states get out of it? I mean, I know we could sit here all day talking about how great Florida is, and I think people get that. But for the states like New York, so you lose $21 billion. California lost around yeah. 300,000 people. I think it's even more than that at this point. Yeah. All the tax money that comes with that. And it's not just that. It's the type of people that leave. It's people that are good community members, that care, that are honest, that work hard. They're, those are the people that are fleeing. Um, what do you think happens to the blue states? Like, is there a bottom to that hole, basically? Is there a rock bottom there, or is it just a free fall now? So, so, so you see, the people like yourself, Dave, how many states you think would love to have you? Every state would love to have you. Think about how many countries would love to, ha love to have us. Think about it. Let's go live in, you know, pick a country, Canada. Let, let's go live in Panama. 2.3% unemployment, low unemployment, but 3% unemployment. Let's go live in France. Let's go anywhere. We're going to bring value to wherever we move to. The problem with the blue states people is the following. They're forcing people like you and I out. The challenge that happens when you push people like us out, you may be only left with people that were relying on the people that were creating the economy. Argentina right now, I think some... 11 million people work to take care of the 8 million people that are not working. Hmm. That system wow. doesn't work. Wow. Okay. So what do people eventually do? They eventually leave. Now watch what happened in Colombia with the new guy they brought in. Do people realize who this guy was before? Yeah. What philosophies does he bring in? Same thing that Venezuela did with Maduro. Same thing that Cuba did. Colombia is going to be next Venezuela and Cuba that's taking place right now. So unfortunately, Certain decisions that is made policies have consequences, and Dave, some of them longer than others. Detroit was the richest city per capita in the world, in the world. Like rich people would go to Detroit to go to parties. Like if you lived in Detroit, you like, I'm living in Dearborn. Oh my God, you guys are rich. Have you been to Detroit lately? Have you seen what's going on? Oh, I, I, well, a couple of years ago, and it is a, I mean, it looks like a third world country. You go into those suburbs with those houses, it looks like bombing. Yeah. Yeah. So some of these bad policies, I think it's, it's such negative effects on the economy of that state that it may take decades and decades to recover, unfortunately. But, but I mean, do you think they have any chance? Like, what would be the turnaround? Is it just that they have to then, okay, let's basically vote Republican, get some sane person here? Like, what is the mechanism 
yeah. that would so, exist to turn it around. So I'm, I'm a data guy. I love hiring analysts. So for example, I, we can hire a gun problem with 50 analysts in a room. And if I can work with the FBI and the government to get all the data, we can figure out what's the main marker that caused the most mass shooting. And instead of trying to ban this, and we're spending so much time with this, just go watch the movie Moneyball. And he hiked <laughs> this guy named Billy Bean and get yeah. all the data. And we'll realize, you thought home runs were important. No one cares. Yeah, home runs is not how you go to the top. On-base percentage. We can get the data. So let's go to the States. So if we want to find out a guy to win in California, let's use that as a case study because, you know, we are very, we have an affinity in California. Okay. So put the 20 policies down to win in California. Guns, Second Amendment, okay, LGBTQ, uh, taxes, uh, health insurance. Uh, I don't know. Just put all those policies down. And then which one of the policies is economy driven? Which one of them is social? Where a straight up Larry Elder is not going to win in California today, right? Where you need a bit of a hybrid guy, not an Arnold who was eventually went fully became pretty much a rhino. He was not necessarily a Republican. He went flipped on the other side. So you get somebody like that, that maybe a Shamat or maybe some of these guys that are willing to stay fiscally on the right. If, if they can find a candidate, like almost like a Peter Thiel, okay, a, a guy like a Peter Thiel who made $6 billion off his Roth IRA because he understands the laws and tax code, you bring a guy like, they're not going to get Peter Thiel, by the way. I know it's this thing like a guy like him, he'll never do it. But, and I, I, don't think, I don't think they're going to get him on the Roth IRA thing either. He's not going to run for governor, that's for sure, but I don't no, no. think they're going to get him on that either. But if California understood what they had with Peter Thiel, like- are you, do you realize who Pete, who you lost with Pete? Everybody worries about who they lost. You lost Peter Thiel. You could have had Peter Thiel to help your state out. Like, how do you not use the talent pool that you have in your state? So, but if they got a guy like Peter Thiel, smart, understands economy. So he is socially, he can be, you know, sitting there saying, well, I can work here. I can work here. I can work there. But if you, if you throw those data points out, You'll be able to figure out who can run for that. And then you got to find somebody that matches those six points that they can sell to that state. Because California is a little bit more complicated than other states to find a real candidate that has a chance of winning. So uh, let's talk about your book for a second. So your next five moves, uh, you've sort of, well, you've been kind of hitting on all the moves in a way here uh, in the time that we've been talking. Um, what's kind of next for you? Like, what, what are some of the next moves you're looking at right now? So uh, this is going live. Okay, so I, I just had a massive exit that I went through, a, uh, a, a very nice exit that we just had. Congratulations. With the great partnership, thank you. And for us, we're very excited about the insurance company. It's grown from where it was at 66 agents to today, uh, what we built. That's an exciting thing that we're going through in the process. We're very, very excited about it. But for me, I look at it right now with the marketplace and media. I think the next 20 years, I believe in 20-year runs. I got two more 20-year runs, God willing. The next 20-year run is going to be purely on the media side. Uh, the messaging of capitalism is what we're going to be leading with when it comes down to business. And I think that part of the message with capitalism is it's not Fox News, right? It's not CNN, left. It's people on the left, right, middle, any, any, any angle you look at, everybody wants to figure out a way how to get better in business. You can be a Democrat and still be a capitalist. You can be a Republican and still be a capitalist. So our vision is to tell the story of capitalism with the best stories that we can find, whether it's through movies, documentaries, shows, our own OTT, 
uh, our original series that we produce ourselves, comedy. We're recruiting a lot of comedians right now. We're recruiting a lot of podcasters right now that will bring in here a close friend of yours, Jedediah Bila, just got started with us. She moved here from New York and we're looking for many more. Uh, we, I'm currently in one of the buildings I just bought. You came to this building. We did the podcast. It was in a bank vault. We have another building that we own that we're going to create a live show where, you know, you can do your live podcast with 200 people sitting in front of you and security, sheriff, their protection, safety. And you're talking to your guests. Let's just say you're doing something with whoever your guest is. 200 people are sitting there. They're buying tickets to come here. So we're taking a complete different angle of where we're going next. But I think the next 20 years, media is wide open. You just saw MSNBC is moving away from Rachel Maddow. You just saw CNN Plus spend $300 million and all they could get is 10,000 active listeners. They took a Wallace away from Fox and they shut the deal down and they spent three, not a spend, let me say the word better. They wasted $300 million. America's sitting there saying, where do I get my news from today? Everyone's curious. You're seeing a great job. Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro on their campus doing. You're seeing a complete different angle. A Barstool Sports is going and they're entertaining. There's so many different ways of doing it. But I think the opportunity is wide open for the media side, and that's what we plan on doing next 20 years. Patrick, you'll love this. Speaking of the 300 million that CNN pissed away on that thing, you know how much money I have spent in the history of my show, the history of the Rubin Report on advertising. Guess how much? How much? Well, I'm, uh, we're in the same I have camp, never but, spent a dime, yeah. But, here, but here's the thing, though. Here's the thing, though. So that, that validates that your voice, there's millions on top of millions, not even millions, there's tens of millions of people that want to hear from you, okay? There's a market that if your message is sincere, if you're straight up, if you're willing to talk and call out your own side, any sides, and you're, you're receptive to whatever feedback they're going to give you, you're willing to evolve just like all of us are evolving. Some of our opinions are changing. You went from an organization you were a part of before where it was seen like being in one place and then you have a meeting with Larry Elder and then boom, you're like, oh my God, this kind of makes sense. The fact that you're shown being open-minded, that ins that's inspiring other people to say, well, if Dave can set aside his ego and he can be, man, what the hell am I? I keep getting in my own way. So your level of, you know, people relate to your authenticity and they're attracted to it. And Dave, it's very, very hard to find authentic voices like yours. So I am not surprised you're kicking ass without having to spend a single penny. Well, likewise, my friend, and that actually gets me back to something that you hit a, a few minutes ago, it's sort of this idea of selling capitalism. So in my last book, I wrote a chapter on be a capitalist in essence. And when I was writing it, I had a researcher that was helping me and we were diving into it and I was like, man, some of this basic stuff about capitalism, about why the free market works, about what it does for you sort of spiritually and, and that you have some autonomy over your life, et cetera, et cetera. Is it ironic to you that the capitalists have not sold capitalism well? That, it seems like a sell job on capitalism that was the yeah. failure. It wasn't the system, it was the marketing, I guess. Well, listen, look, look everything is in the way you tell stories. Think about how uh, pro-abortion didn't work. Who, who wants to pro-abort? Pro-choice, mm -hmm. you change the word. Same exact thing. Look what happens to it. There's nothing more powerful than pro-life. I'm pro-life. What a great, you know, name, phrase, pro-life, right? So Mark and make America great again. It's a pro-life message. I'm with her. I don't understand that, but dream Obama. 
wow, that that wording is like dream. You know, Obama's going to do something yeah. that is exciting. So, you know, in real estate many years ago, uh, you know, when you think about an America, what is the American dream? If you ask the average person right now, we do the, like a street team. You and I go to New York. I go to Boston and we meet up later on tonight. You go ask people in the streets of New York. You guys, I go ask people in the streets of Boston. What is the American dream? They'll say home ownership. Who told you it's home ownership? Well, it's a marketing genius years ago when they noticed more people are renting than buying. And they said, wait a minute, guys, we got to make money. People are starting to realize it doesn't make any sense to buy a house rent like today. It doesn't make any sense to buy a house right now. It's better to, turn, to rent than buy a house. What do we do? We got to figure something out. This marketing genius said, look, why do immigrants come to America? They come to America for the American dream. What if we're able to convince all of America that the American dream starts with home ownership? How do we do that? I don't care what company you're a part of. In this topic, we all got to be on the same page. Everybody that spends every advertising dollar when it comes down to American dream, we all do it the same way. What do you mean? Here's how the commercial should sound like. Hey, you know, I'd love one day for us to live the American dream. What are you talking about? How much longer do we need to rent? We came to America so we can own our own home. That's the American dream. And you see the commercial. They open the keys in the door. They go inside. Wife kisses the husband and say, oh, my God, it feels so amazing living the American dream. Boom. Everybody bought a house. Why? It's the flipping American dream. Capitalists suck at telling the story of capitalism. And do you know why? I'll tell you why. A big part of it. Have you noticed how Jeff Bezos has grass, uh, grown some brass lately? I don't know if you've noticed that. Yeah, well, he seems like he's doing a little bit of a shift, although he's still doing some evil stuff with Washington Post, but I'll give him a little something, okay? But, but why do you think though? Why do you think? Let's actually unpack that. Why, why is he talking? What are you doing twice in three months? You call out Biden on Twitter? What are you doing? You voted for this guy. So why is he doing that? There's only one way I can speculate. Who's the guy that gets more attention than he does? Who gets more attention than he does that's as rich as he is? It's one Elon. guy. Elon. Well, Elon. Yeah. I'm here to tell you my speculation, Elon Musk is indirectly training Bezos to grow some. And Bezos starting to finally realize, I'm a freaking badass. What the hell am I doing being so afraid of walking on eggshells around everybody? I'm, I'm one of the richest guys in the world if I'm not the richest. So capitalists are afraid for others to know they're successful. First of all, screw the people that are bashing you for you being successful. There's the other 50% of America that has wanted to listen to the American dream stories because they also want to live the dream. So inspire them. Don't lose your backbone. Go tell the story of how you did it. Go tell them how hard it was. Go tell them the sleepless nights. Go tell them the amount of time you slept under your office desk. You, your pillow was the floor. You're like just sitting there getting up coding in the morning. Tell those stories because people want to know that. And then eventually more people are going to sit there and say, man, what the hell am I like? Why do I bash so many rich people? Dude, I want to, I want to go. I'm sick and tired of being broke. I want to make some money. So I think capitalists have to stop apologizing for being successful and just tell them the way you did it and be okay that you're going to get hate. You're supposed to get hate. You're a winner. Winners get all the hate. Stop like being confused that everybody's supposed to like you when you win. People don't like a winner. Like um, Michael Jordan was the most hated player when he was winning all the time. LeBron was hated. Kobe was hated. Steph Curry's currently hated. Draymond Green is hated. But we love winners. We admire them. So I think sometimes capitalists have lost their backbone. I'm glad to see. I'm not a WAPO fan, but I'm glad to see that even a Bezos is willing to kind of grow some and say, hey. And maybe it's the girl that's doing it to him that's saying, listen, you're a badass. Say something. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> you got to say something. You're a pretty big bad. I say something. So I, I'm, I'm kind of feeling like we're seeing the transition. I may be wrong, but I'm seeing that transition, which is good news. Well, for the record, I think LeBron with the flopping and the China stuff maybe is deserving. <laughs> Kobe, not so much. Jordan, not so much. They, they killed everybody. Uh, but it's interesting that you said the thing about Elon, because I think you're right. He's mapping something. That's one of the things I've been saying on the show for months now. It, maybe he's mapping it for Bezos, but I think he's mapping it for everybody because even if he's the world's richest man, he's still just one guy. And he's saying, hey, I will not bow because you hear this all the time. Well, you know, I'm gonna say what I want when I've got FU money. And I'm sure, Patrick, you probably know way more of the, of the uh, you know, billionaire class than I do. They often don't. Teal does. He's one of the guys that will do the FU to everybody. But I think what happens is they start going, oh, now I have all these employees. I have all these houses. I have all these responsibilities. So they become more quiet than they were before. And Elon, I think, is now mapping, hey, get out there and do something. Although I will say, as we're recording this right now, uh, he's gone quiet on Twitter for a little bit. I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. So something something weird might be brewing. It, it may be the closing of the deal. And he is told by the lawyers on the other side that you have to stay quiet until the deal closes. And you know, I went through the process myself on a much, much smaller deal, but it's still a multi, multi, multi nine figure deal. And you're told by lawyers to stay quiet. Mm -hmm. So that could be some of the things that's being fine, you know, uh, uh, scored away, like, like kind of putting it together that both lawyers are saying you can't say anything on Twitter. So the mapping, though, the, this general idea of like, do something for yourself, that that's yeah. sort of it more than anything else. Doesn't matter if yeah. you're rich or poor. Yeah. You know, you know, what's the best thing about that? It's the first person that does it makes it OK for the other guys to do it. So, so Elon is mapping it out for Bezos and others to say here, you can be super successful you can say what you want to say in Twitter and you can piss people off and that's okay. It's supposed to be that way. Stop being so soft, worried about what others are going to say about you. I got a lot of employees and some of them don't agree with me politically, but you know what happened? I'll stop and I said, tell me how you feel that, why you feel that way. Well, Patrick, the other day on the podcast, you said X, Y, Z, I disagree with you. Really? Tell me why. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. That's a good point. Okay. Fair enough. I can, this is why I said this. I never thought about that before. Well, why don't we keep, Continuing this conversation, see where it goes six months from now. Fair enough. So that's what's going to happen if your employees are against you or they don't agree with what you have, what you have to say. But the opposite of you standing there and not saying anything and not taking a stand, well, then that's typically not the qualities of a leader we admire. Bezos and Musk have the same amount of net worth. Bezos and Musk don't have the same amount of influence and following. Elon has 100 million people following him on Twitter. Bezos got 5 million. That's 20 times more the influence, same amount of wealth. People are starting to realize you can be as rich as you want, but you don't have a voice. And Elon's teaching you, you need a voice today. Grab the mic and start increasing your influence. Hopefully, can you imagine if all of a sudden Bezos comes out and says the following? Like, think about it. Imagine Bezos says this. When Elon said, honestly, moving forward, I can't see myself voting for the left. I just can't. If a DeSantis ran, I would, I would vote for him. Musk said it. Be uh, Rogan says it. Mm -hmm. Imagine if Bezos. Do you Bill Maher is coming out saying some yeah. stuff about? <laughs> do you realize how scary this is for the left? This is a nightmare for them. So this is why I say to you: as much as if you think they're doing it intentionally, good, because it's not working. Yeah. For the record, this is Michael Malice, who I've had on the show many times. Do you know Michael Malice? Have you? Have you I do. I had him on once. Oh, before. you've had yeah. him on. Yeah. 
This yeah. is his, his running theory for years has been every time the left says something crazy, you just tell people about it and more, and they'll just keep running with the craziness. So since you just mentioned DeSantis, and since we are both proud Floridians, uh, let's map something out in real time, and, and maybe it'll get to the governor or to uh, Donald Trump. What do you think is going to happen with these two? What What do you want to happen? Because I've been kind of like, you know, I want DeSantis to stay here, crush it in the next election, his gubernatorial election, obviously in November, and then see what happens. But it seems like Trump's going to run. I don't want them to destroy each other. It's like, do you if you if you were sitting in a room with the two of them, what would you be telling them right now? Okay, so so first of all, I don't think it's a good idea if they run uh, uh, simultaneously. I don't think it is. I think. I would like to broker a deal of them to having a dinner together that nobody knows about, including either one of their administration, except for like the main mastermind, like, you know, the main uh, influencers there. And that's only two voices. And they set up a meeting and they go and sit down and talk privately for a couple hours. Then maybe the couple of advisors are sitting there and they say, so look, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. What's the plan? Let me ask you a question. Would you be willing to be a VP? Um, no. Okay. So then are you okay not running this year? His advisor may say, he's so hot, he has to run. If he doesn't run, he's missing out on a great opportunity. He's young. He's attractive. America's tired of 70-year-old presidents. And maybe America wants to have a 43, 44, 45-year-old president. And he's peaking. And sometimes in situations like this, you can't assume you're always gonna you're always gonna peak. Yep. Life doesn't work that yep. way. You may. Yep. Five years from now, the policies may not matter a lot and he's irrelevant. Maybe not irrelevant, but not at the level that he has. So we think he's going to be running. Okay, so if he runs, then what are we doing? Are you going to call me out? Are we going to bash each other? How are we going to win this thing here? How are we going to talk to the media? That's number one step. For me, it's brokering a sit-down dinner with the two of them that nobody is aware of except from two parties on each side. Now, let's say that uh, doesn't happen. Okay, all right. So you heard uh, five days ago, Trump said, I would entertain the idea of him running with me as a VP. That's a little bit of a dig because if I'm DeSantis and I see this, I'm like, what are you talking about? Running with you as a VP. I, I could win if I wanted to run right now. And then Trump may say, you don't have a 141 and 11 record. 141 and 11, my endorsements out of the 150 something things, uh, you know, endorsements I've given 141, I have a better record than the 97, 98 bowls. <laughs> is what I get. You want to go against that? So, yeah. and then he said, if they run together, this will be the last one, Dave, is if you're putting the basketball team together, it makes no sense to have Shaq and Hakeem on the same team because you got two fives, it's two centers. It makes no sense for Kobe and Jordan to be teammates. It makes zero sense. Look how many of these super teams, they team up and they don't win championships. Boston Celtics, which they don't really, Tatum is a superstar, but not like a crazy. And they go to the finals and they play against Golden State, because those are actual teams. Like it's shown to you, teams are winning. Last year was Milwaukee and Suns. Teams are winning, right? So I don't know if I like the Trump and DeSantis ticket. And I don't even believe DeSantis even believes when Trump says I would pick him as a VP. Because I think last minute Trump would flip and he would take somebody else and would leave him out as a VP. I don't think he would take him as a VP. Because, because Trump, Trump is going to do better. Trump is looking more for a COO. He's not looking for a CEO. Mike Pence was a COO. 
DeSantis is a CEO. So two CEOs as a president and VP, I don't think that's a good formula. Yeah, it's so interesting. Well, first off, I have to say, I'm very happy to hear that clearly you are watching the Rubin Report every single day because I've been pushing for the private sit down. That's been my thing. Guys, just have a private sit down. I don't know what you're gonna work out, but you guys have to work it out and it doesn't have to be worked out in front of all of us. That's been my, my main thing. You know, what I would love to see is, you know, if Trump could sort of be the kingmaker here, if he could, you know, clear the room for DeSantis to run right through, I think that probably is the best, you know, run the rallies and make some room. I, but yes, your face right there is what everyone kind of says. It's like, can he do that? Would he do that? I don't know. You know what you know would be a crazy thing? Here's what's a crazy thing. If Trump, um, hey, this will never happen. But if a Trump was able to have the meeting, and the VP candidate becomes his daughter. So if they were to say, well, why don't you go? Well, my daughter's gonna be the VP and his daughter's got so much poise and class and you know, the way she is. So an Ivanka DeSantis ticket, that's an interesting, and by the way, remember the comments he just made recently, she just made recently when the, when Ivanka said, you know, if, if a bar says that, then, you know, I'll take his word for it. So she also knows how to stand up like, you know, I don't know. I mean, a DeSantis Trump ticket, but an Ivanka Trump ticket sounds very interesting to some people. I just throw a curveball in there, but I'm just saying there are a lot of ways to map this out. Yeah, you could have been working for him on The Apprentice. That's a, that's a hell of a move in the boardroom at the last second. Uh, Patrick, pleasure talking to you. First off, you also make all the basketball references that work for me. We got to get down here and shoot sometime. I've been, I uh, look forward yeah, to we're going to make that happen. 72 and 10, by the way, those 90, uh, that was the 96 Bulls, right? 72 and 10? A 72 and 10. Not bad. Not bad. They, You're, call, but, they call them the greatest basketball team of all time. Golden State will debate it, but uh, Jordan said nobody would have beaten us. I don't think anyone would have beat those Bulls. I mean, I Jordan just, so. he slayed everybody. He just slayed them with six for yeah. six in the finals. Come on. Yeah. That's, by the way, that debate with LeBron, I think it's over with. Oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't even think it's a debate. It's yeah. over with. We'll do a separate show just on old NBA. I can't, I can't do new NBA. All right, man, you got two minutes to stick around for one more thing on my sure, uh, yeah, Locals community it. page. Yes. All right, fantastic. Uh, Patrick, Bet David, links are down below and we're gonna do a little something on Locals right now. Thanks for tuning into The Rubin Report. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. If you're looking for early and exclusive content, you can join me on Locals at rubenreport.locals.com.